Down Home Fear is an independently produced podcast. To support the show, visit www.downhomefear.com. You're listening to Down Home Fear, exploring true crimes and strange happenings of the American South. Welcome back to Down Home Fear. My name is Keegan, and this is episode 16. Early followers of DHF may remember today's story from the very first episode that I ever did, way back in September of 2016. Like with the story on Eileen Warnos, the original episode is no longer available for quality control reasons, basically, Those were a couple of the very early episodes, and the audio quality wasn't too great, the presentation was not the best, I'll just say. But anyhow, uh, this particular story is probably my favorite one that I've ever done for the show, and I've been promising people on the internet that I'd retell it and put it back up. So this story has a really good mix of the true crime aspect of DHF as well as the strange happenings aspect of DHF. It's the story of a boy who was named Nicholas Barclay and a man who was named Frederick Bourdine. Imagine you're from a lower middle class background. You have a 13-year-old son, and he has a reputation for being a juvenile delinquent. One afternoon, he doesn't come home from a community center where he'd often play basketball, and after some weak search efforts from the local police, he's deemed missing and becomes a cold case. Three years pass, and miraculously, you're contacted by law enforcement officials, and they say that your son has been found alive and in Europe of all places. You'd be ecstatic, right? What are the chances? Could this really be happening? You know that popular saying that when something seems too good to be true, it usually is? Well, case in point. June 13, 1994, 13-year-old Nicholas Barkley's family lived in a lower middle-class neighborhood in San Antonio, Texas. San Antonio is a huge city in central Texas. It has a population of around 1.4 million. His mother, Beverly, worked at graveyard shifts at a local Dunkin' Donuts seven nights a week just to make ends meet. She was addicted to heroin, but was known for being functional and a caring mother. She had three children from two different relationships. Nicholas was the youngest, and the older two were from a failed marriage. Their names were Carrie and Jason. Nicholas was fair-skinned and blue-eyed, with strong facial features, 
I think that he looks almost like he could have been a child actor given different circumstances. But Nicholas was rough around the edges. He sported crude prison-style tattoos on his hands and forearms, and he had behavioral problems. He frequently got in trouble at school. He had even threatened a teacher once. Police were frequently called to his home when he became violent with his mother and his older siblings. Nicholas had been known to run away from home, but never for more than a day or two at a time. And on June 14, 1994, he was actually scheduled for a court hearing that would determine if he could be placed in a group home for at-risk youth. Which is why on June 13th, when he never returned home from playing basketball at a local community center, no one was particularly concerned at first. Beverly, his mother, claims that the disappearance never even made the local news. Here's the problem. The runaway theory didn't add up because Nicholas had actually tried calling his house to ask for a ride home. His brother Jason answered the phone and told him that he would have to walk. Nicholas had disappeared without a trace. About three years passed, and in October of 1997, the unbelievable happened. The National Center for Missing and Exploited Children in Arlington, Virginia, was contacted by someone who said that they were a Spanish law enforcement official. He said that they had found an American boy in Linares, Spain. The boy seemed very traumatized, but physically healthy, but was refusing to give his name, the Spanish official explained but he insisted that the boy was definitely American. The Spanish official provided a physical description of what the boy looked like. Fair-skinned, blue eyes, blonde hair. And the staff at the Center for Missing and Exploited Children matched the description with none other than Nicholas Barkley. So Nicholas's family in San Antonio gets the news and they're hit with a wave of emotions. They're shocked, they're relieved, they're frightened. Carrie, Nicholas's older sister, volunteers to fly to Linares, Spain to meet Nicholas and bring him home. Once Carrie's flight lands in Spain, she's accompanied by some government officials who fill her in on the key details. Nicholas had been staying in a youth shelter in Linares, since arriving there in a state of extreme distress. He seemed to be suffering from severe PTSD brought on by abuse that he had suffered since being abducted in Texas three years earlier. When Carrie arrived at the shelter where Nicholas had been staying, she recalls that she was extremely anxious. Who wouldn't be? She was brought inside to the room where Nicholas had been staying, and there he was, standing there, wearing a wide-brimmed hat and sunglasses and a scarf that partially concealed his face. He didn't say anything at first. Carrie, not sure what to do, rushed over to him and embraced him. The officials left the two alone for a while so they could reconnect. Carrie had brought photographs with her to help her remind Nicholas of his old life. 
She had photos of her home, her family members. Do you remember your brother Jason, she'd ask. Look, there's Grandpa. Here's a photo of your house. Do you remember? On the flight back to America, Carrie began noticing that something was off about Nicholas, beyond just his psychological trauma. He spoke in whispers. He seemed fidgety and uncomfortable. He didn't show much emotion. She kept convincing herself that this was all a part of his PTSD. When Carrie and Nicholas landed at the airport in San Antonio, practically the whole family was there waiting for them. But he was greeted with mixed reactions. Here's the thing that you need to understand about Carrie. She really, really wanted her half-brother to be found. Of all the family members, she seemed to have been the one that took his disappearance the hardest. She would watch shows on TV about missing children, and she just couldn't get Nicholas off of her mind, which is understandable. She had a close relationship with Nikki, as she used to call him, and with his sudden, mysterious disappearance, it really rocked her at a core level. But now, with the rest of the family there to balance out Carrie's rose-tinted perspective, things got weird. Beverly, again, Nick's mother, was especially put off by the change in Nicholas's appearance. It had been three years since Nicholas had last been seen. His physical appearance was bound to have changed somewhat. But it wasn't just as if he had aged. His skin had actually become darker. His eyes had changed from blue to brown. He even had the shadow of a dark beard. But despite these initial concerns, the family went ahead and welcomed Nicholas in. And for the next five months, October 18th, 1997, through March 5th, 1998, serial imposter Frederick Bourdine embedded himself within their lives. That's right. The person who had somehow managed to pass himself off as Nicholas Barclay was actually a 23-year-old French man who had spent virtually his entire life conning people and assuming false identities. In those days, his primary ruse was to trick people into thinking that he was a teenage orphan so that he could get free assistance from youth shelter programs. On one particular night in October of 1997, he arrived at a youth shelter in Linares, Spain, seeking help. But when he was brought inside and it seemed that things were going according to plan, he realized that they intended to take his fingerprints, which was an issue because he was well known to Spanish police and Interpol based off of his previous arrests. That's when Frederick Bourdin concocted an elaborate story about being a kidnapped American boy in an attempt to avoid having the authorities run his fingerprints. He convinced the shelter staff to let him stay in their offices overnight so that he could call his family in the United States. Bourdin proceeded to literally call random police stations in the U.S. pretending to be a Spanish police officer. 
Eventually, one of the police stations referred him to the Center for Missing and Exploited Children, at which point he created a generic description of an American child that just happened to match Nicholas Barclay's description. Spanish authorities were skeptical at first, but once Carey flew to Spain and began vouching for Frederick, authorities stopped questioning his identity. From the outside looking in, it all seems ridiculous. But how unusual would it have been for a person to be so convincing of a liar that they actually had someone else's family members vouching for them? It's just unbelievable. Once Frederick Bourdain reached America, he lived with Carrie and her husband rather than Beverly. He lived with them in a rural wooded area about 30 miles north of San Antonio, in a trailer home. Beverly said that the reason she didn't want her quote-unquote son living with her at the time was that she was still working night shifts and that she didn't want him alone in the house. So for most of his time in the United States, Bourdine lived with Carrie, her husband Brian, and her son Cody, who he actually shared a room with. Bourdine was enrolled in a local high school. He did his homework each night. He occasionally attended church. He would hang out with his quote-unquote family. And people who met him often remarked on how courteous and friendly he was, if not a bit soft-spoken. In November, a TV producer hired a private investigator named Charlie Parker to start looking into Nicholas Barclay's story. Parker went out to the trailer that Bourdain was staying at and interviewed him on camera. Bourdain was perfectly calm as he relayed his harrowing story, saying that he had been kidnapped by sex traffickers and suffered all sorts of cruel and bizarre abuses over the ensuing three years, including having his eyes injected with a chemical that changed their color from blue to brown. And during all of this, Parker just couldn't shake the feeling that something was off. Parker first and foremost did not buy that Nicholas's accent would have changed so drastically in just three years. Keep in mind that Frederick Bourdain had grown up in France and Spain, and he spoke English well, but he had a very thick accent that he couldn't shake. Additionally, when he was interviewing Bourdain at the trailer... Parker saw an old photograph of Nicholas and noticed that the ears did not match Bourdain's. So after the meeting, Parker called several ophthalmologists and asked if a chemical existed that could change a person's eye color. All of the doctors said no. Then Parker spoke with a dialect expert from Trinity University who confirmed his suspicion that a person would have quickly regained their native accent even if they were held in captivity for several years. Parker notified the family about his findings. He wanted them to know that there was something amiss and that there could be a dangerous person living with them in their home. But the family insisted that Frederick Bourdain truly was Nicholas. 
Parker also notified the police, but the police also insisted that Bourdine was Nicholas. Parker felt compelled for some reason to continue investigating the story, even though at this point he had no legal, financial, or ethical responsibility to do so. He said that he suspected that Bourdine may have been a terrorist of some sort, and that he wouldn't have felt right just turning his back on the situation. Charlie Parker, who, again, was a private investigator, was not the only person who was skeptical and suspicious of this individual claiming to be Nicholas Barclay. The FBI had been zeroing in on Bourdine as well after a strange interview that they'd had with him just a few weeks after he landed in San Antonio. Nancy Fisher, who was a veteran agent who was in charge of the investigation, noticed during the interview that Bourdine's hair had been very poorly dyed. It was obvious that he was not a natural blonde. In November of 1997, Fisher managed to bring Bourdine with her to meet with a forensic psychiatrist who specialized in speech development. After meeting with Bourdine, the psychiatrist told Fisher that the person claiming to be Nicholas Barkley was most certainly not American. Based off of the man's accent and speech patterns, Fisher was told, he was most likely French or Spanish. So by this point, Fisher believed that Bourdine was actually a spy, which I think is interesting because it's a similar conclusion that Charlie Parker came to. By December of 1997, the master manipulator and con man had begun to unravel. Bourdine would later say that living with a family of sorts was claustrophobic for him and that he was a street kid at heart. He wasn't used to stability and forging relationships. He began acting agitated and impulsive, skipping school, going through mood swings. He even stole Carrie's car one day for a joyride to Oklahoma. And this next part is a bit gruesome, but around Christmas time, he used a razor blade to carve deep gashes in his face. This landed him in a psychiatric hospital for a short period of time. But let's be real, the family situation was not the only thing causing anxiety for Bourdine. He knew that he was almost at the end of his rope, and that it was just a matter of time before he was brought to justice. Although Beverly and Frederick Bourdine refused to provide blood samples for a DNA test, the FBI was able to get a court order that forced Bourdine and Beverly to provide blood samples. After using this information to confirm that Frederick Bourdine was not Nicholas Barclay, the FBI moved in to arrest him on March 5, 1998. He was arrested at Beverly's apartment after getting a pancake breakfast with Charlie Parker, which is part of a strange side story, which is that Nancy Fisher actually asked Charlie Parker to keep Bourdine at this diner while the FBI was working on getting the paperwork in place for Bourdine's arrest warrant. 
So they hung out and had pancakes together. Charlie Parker claims that he confronted Bourdain about his true identity, and Bourdain came clean with him right then and there. Whether or not that's true, only Bourdain and Parker know for certain. On September 8, 1998, Frederick Bourdain pled guilty to perjury and possessing false documents because in order for him to enter the United States, he had to apply for a social security card and a passport. And obviously, the American government does not take kindly to people providing false information in order to obtain those. So he was sentenced to six years in prison which is actually three times above what is recommended under the sentencing guidelines. The judge was especially harsh on Bourdain, given the circumstances that he had lied about being a missing child, and then used his manipulative ways to actually ingrain himself in a family's life. Interestingly, Beverly says that she's actually somewhat sympathetic to Bourdain. She said once that the kid's a mess and it's sad. I wouldn't wish that on anybody. So that that's kind of curious. The rest of the family, though, Carrie and her husband and everyone else, they're not sympathetic at all. They were outraged at... Frederick Bourdain, and they do not have anything nice to say about him. So at the end of all of this, what actually happened to Nicholas Barclay? No one knows for sure, or at least if they do, no one's coming out and saying it. It's been suggested by multiple people, including Frederick Bourdain himself, that Nicholas was killed by his older brother, Jason. Jason was heavily addicted to cocaine and alcohol and was known to become violent. After Nicholas's disappearance, Jason began shooting cocaine and spiraling completely out of control, eventually getting kicked out of his mom's house where he had been living. But he did go to rehab and get sober. The suspicion around Jason usually centers on that he did not immediately go to see quote-unquote Nicholas once he landed at the airport in San Antonio in 1997. He actually waited about a month and a half before he went to meet with Nicholas. Jason died of a drug overdose shortly after Bourdain was brought into custody, and he had actually been living sober for a long period of time by that point. So it's been speculated that the overdose was actually intentional. However, the FBI investigated this lead and they determined that there was no evidence to suggest that Jason or any other family member was involved with Nicholas's disappearance. It's also been suggested that Nicholas may have tried hitchhiking home from the basketball court and just ended up picking a ride with the wrong person. Um, but it's never been determined exactly what happened to him. As far as where Frederick is now, he was released from prison in the United States and then deported to France in October of 2003. 
He almost immediately tried taking the identity of another missing child, but was quickly thwarted by blood tests. In 2004, he tried passing himself off as a teenager who had been orphaned by the Madrid bombing attacks. And in 2005, he tried passing himself off as a 15-year-old Spanish orphan. And he was actually successful at this until a school teacher saw a documentary about his exploits and recognized him. Over the years, he has seemed to have mellowed out a bit. He's now married with four children. He lives in his home country of France in the town of Le Mans, where he works as a telemarketer. And he's said to be a very good salesman. I strongly, strongly recommend that you watch interview clips with Frederick Bourdain. He has a very tightly wound, very alert sort of vibe. His eyes dart around and seem to be constantly scanning and processing information. It's very reptilian, very discomforting. He's known for being an incredibly intelligent guy, which I do not doubt at all. I don't think hardly anyone could manage to think quickly enough and be creative enough and have the ingenuity to just spin a crazy, crazy lie like that. I mean, that's like beyond even like Casey Anthony level of like pathological lying. You know, he's, he is on the next level and it's fascinating and terrifying and infuriating. Interestingly, as far as we know, there's never been a sexual or violent motivation behind his crimes. Taking on the identities of others fulfills some sort of psychological function for Frederick Bourdain. He's been found to score very highly on psychological measures for psychopathy, which is something that he is actually apparently greatly offended by. He thinks it's a insult to be called a psychopath, which I guess it kind of is. But I mean, speaking in clinical terms, there's no judgments there. Frederick once mentioned, people always say to me, why don't you become an actor? But I don't want to play somebody. I want to be somebody. Before we wrap up, I have big news. There are now stickers available for purchase on downhomefear.com. Be sure to check them out. I have two designs currently available. Buy one, put it on your car, your kid's lunchbox, whatever. Show people that you support awesome podcasts. Again, the website is downhomefear.com. 
If you're not on our Facebook group, what are you doing? Come hang out with us and talk about the episodes. The name of the group is Down Home Fear Podcast. If you search it on the Facebook search bar, it will come up and you can join and I will add you. Follow Down Home Fear on Twitter at Down Home Fear. You can also email me at downhomefear at gmail.com. Feel free to send me story suggestions, comments about the show, anything like that. Finally, the easiest way, I think, to support the podcast is simply through word of mouth. Telling your friends about the show, posting about the show on social media, etc., etc., is tremendously helpful and helps get the word out about DHF. It helps the show grow and flourish. So if you have a friend who you know is into true crime or horror or just general offbeat kind of macabre stories, definitely let them know about the show. As always, thank you so much for listening. My name is Keegan, and this has been another installment of Down Home Fear. <laughs>